Well, thank you, Dan, music team, and everybody. Happy Mother's Day to all the mothers out there, both physical and spiritual mothers. Um, we're continuing in our series, the 316 series, where we are going through various books of the Bible looking at chapter 3, verse 16. And some of the chapter 3's verse 16 are encouraging. Chris Weir started out with holding on to what you attained. Uh, we talked a couple of weeks ago about uh, Ruth 316 and all that the man has done for us. Uh, some of the 316s are challenging. We looked at James 316 and true wisdom last week. And one of the advantages, or maybe it's a disadvantage, of doing the 316 series is that it's kind of fun, but it's not just without purpose. By choosing chapter 3 and verse 16, it forces us into texts that we might otherwise overlook or not want to address. But because it's verse 316 and we're going through a 316 series, it takes us to different parts of the Bible each week and confronts us with things uh, that we don't always want to grapple with. And this morning is no different. Uh, even on this Mother's Day, I've chosen Genesis 3.16. And at this point, and at various points through this week, I've been considering my life choices when I've made this decision. So let me read for you Genesis 3.16. Genesis 3.16 says, To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Happy Mother's Day. <laughs> like I said, I'm questioning my life choices, and our series takes us to texts we don't always want to confront. But this is a problem, right? Just like the James text, it takes us to a point in our humanity that is a problem that needs a solution. And like all of Scripture, there is what is a reality in this creation after the fall, and there is a intention that God had. And so we're going to unpack this today, and if you bear with me, it will be uplifting and hopeful in the end. But we do have to ask ourselves, why is there a battle of the sexes? Why is it in the long history of human relationships there's been a power struggle between men and women, whether you're talking about in government, whether you're talking about in the workforce, whether you're talking about in the home, whether you're talking about in marriages, whether you're talking about in culture or society, there is this inherent battle of the sexes. It doesn't take very long on the schoolyard for the ball game or whatever competition to become guys versus girls. It doesn't take very long when you're having a party and just, you know, trying to just have fun playing games before it's husbands against wives. There is a battle of the sexes that take place. Why do our marriages result in conflict? Why are we at odds with each other, often along what seems to be clearly defined different gender lines? And if we look across all cultures in all times, the scene looks very much the same. This is not something unique to the 20th or the 21st century. There is a battle of the sexes. There's a pattern of ruling and resisting, a pattern of frustration and domination at the worst of times, and a pattern of resigned imbalance at the best of times. It just seems ingrained in our very nature that there is a battle that lays across these two boundaries. Now, the Bible didn't cause it, 
and God doesn't want it, but Genesis 3.16 is a key verse in understanding why we do it. And the supporting text that I'll go to today in Genesis will help us understand what God did intend in the relationship between man and woman and how he has set us free to redeem and restore it. And so today really comes down to a message in three parts that you can follow along. The first part is the problem, which is the curse. The second part is God's intention in creation. And the third part is the solution in the gospel. So the first thing that we need to look at to understand what Genesis 3.16 means is its context, and the context of Genesis 3.16 is our problem. It is the fall and the curse. In Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve have both sinned against God. They've distrusted his goodness. They've turned away from him to depend on their own wisdom for how to be satisfied, and so they rejected the word of God, and they rebel against his good boundaries, and God then tells them, because of your rebellion— Because you rely on your own wisdom, there's going to be consequences. There are no causes without effects. And the effect is often called the curse. And very broadly, it means this. It means that the world as we see it today is not the world that God intended at creation. And it is so important as we consider all of the struggles that we have and wrestle with in the hardest parts of this life whether we're talking about sin and suffering, whether we're talking about illness, war, death, disease, the struggle between nations, the struggle between races, and even this struggle between man and woman, husband and wife. One part of the curse, which is that the world is not how God intended it, is described to us in Genesis 3.16. This is part of the curse. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing, In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. That's the curse. That's a result of sin. That's the very first thing we have to understand here in this text. This is a consequence of rebellion and putting our own desires higher than God's wisdom. It is not a description of what God intended. It is not a biblical instruction to men or women. It's not how God wants his redeemed people to behave. This context here is the curse. But what exactly does it mean? The first consequence is simple and straightforward. Women, you are going to find childbearing painful. And from my limited observation of this phenomenon, I gather that it's true, and I don't have any personal experience to make any contrary argument, and so I won't. We will just leave the first half of this part of the verse alone. I don't think it needs any more explanation. It's very obvious. Childbearing hurts. But the second part is as obscure as the first part is obvious. And it's the focus of our look today at Scripture. Various English translations that you have in your Bible will take a run at trying to make it more clear. The ESV, which I've read, is your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. The New Living Translation says, and you will desire to control your husband, but he will rule over you. The New English Translation says, you will want to control your husband, but he will dominate you. And probably most literally, it reads this way, as the NASB, even the New King James says, yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. 
And that's kind of an awkward sentence. And, and like I say, different translations have taken different cracks at trying to interpret what it means. And most of them generally have it right. If you're to look at Genesis 4-7, actually, there's a parallel phrase that's almost exactly the same as is written in 3.16. In Genesis 4-7, um, Cain is sacrifice has been rejected by God, and he's angry about that, and God is basically saying to Cain, be careful because you are almost about to sin very seriously. And he says in Genesis 4-7, if you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, this is what God says, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you, but you must master it. Almost the same phrase, or you must rule over it. And so we get an idea of what does it mean that something's desire is for something, but then you must rule over it. And, and like I say, the translations have, have pretty much got it right. This idea of desire being for something is the idea that it wants to rule over, it wants to conquer, it wants to enslave. Sin wants to get a hold of Cain, and God is saying, Cain, you have to rule over that sin that wants you. If you bring it back to 3.16, and we take that same meaning, we understand that women, you will want to contest with. You will want to overthrow. You will want to get dominion over your husband, but you are not going to master him. He is actually most of the time going to master you. And so 316 is about conflict. It is about a, a war that is going on, that, that women want to resist and they want to get their way, and at the same time, men and husbands want to resist their demands and get their way. It's about two selfish people trying to rule over each other. And the reality is, as we see in every society, in every culture, for thousands of years, often the frustration is on the woman's part, and the quote-unquote success is on the male part but neither one is happy. So it's an ugly, broken relationship. That's the curse. You both want to overthrow each other, and it's going to go badly. It describes a conflict between male and female that's marked all of world history. What the curse tells us here is that maleness, as God created it, and manhood, as God created manhood, has become depraved and corrupted, ruling where it should not rule, and womanhood, as God created it, has become depraved and corrupted, wanting to rule, and each wanting to rule over each other. The essence of depravity of sin for both male and female is self-glorification, self-exaltation, self-reliance. It's just like the original sin. We want to decide what is good for us. We will establish our own wisdom. We will be in control. Remember, I'm describing the problem. We're not getting to the good stuff yet. But this is what 316 is describing. It's not what God created. It's not what God wants. It's the result of our rebellion. And we see it played out day after day, year after year, century after century. And God essentially here in 3.16 says, yes, that is what it's going to be like now. As long as sin is reigning, as long as the curse is corrupting, you will feel this tension and conflict, women, crouching in your relationships with men and with your husband. And men, you will feel this battle crouching in your relationship to your wife and this temptation to use your gender as power. But that is not what God intended. 
Genesis chapter 1 and 2 contains descriptions of what God actually intended for the relationship of woman and man. It describes what womanhood and manhood is at its foundation, specifically wife to husband. And so understanding the problem now, the curse and our rebellion and this gender battle, the battle of the sexes which seems inevitable, whether we're talking about in society or culture or in even our marriages, let's look at the intention. What did God intend when he made man and woman? In Genesis chapter 1, we have a description of God's creation and his intentions in it. He's creating all energy and all matter. God is creating all life, and he's creating it so that it would be good. The repeated phrase of Genesis chapter 1 is, and God saw that it was good. Right? You remember that? Genesis 1, just keep saying it over and over again. And God saw that it was good. He created this, and he saw that it was good. And then he created this, and he saw that it was good. And he created this, and he saw that it was good. Just like the context of Genesis 3 is the curse, the context of creation of man and woman in Genesis 1 is he saw and it was good. It's about good creation. Understand that context and keep this in mind. Because in Genesis 1.27, we read, So God created man, and the Hebrew word for man is Adam, in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. So man and woman are different than the rest of creation. They are not only made good, but in the image of God. That's their defining quality that makes them different than all other creation. Male and female, Moses writes it out so that it's very clear that he's talking about all of mankind or all of humanity being made in God's image. He means both men and women are image bearers of God, not just one of them. And Moses keeps using this clarifying phrase because the Hebrew word for man, as in mankind, is, as I said, Adam, Adam, which is also used for the name of the first man. And so Moses doesn't want us to get confused about who he says is made in the image of God. And so when talking about mankind, Moses always clarifies to say, I mean the male and the female both. God created them both in the image of God. And it becomes even more clear because Moses does it again in chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Moses doesn't want his readers to be confused, and so he spells it out again. In Genesis 5, 1 to 2, he says, This is the book of the generations of Adam, meaning the name Adam. This is Adam, his generations. When God created man, Adam, he made him in the likeness of God, male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them Adam when they were created. Right, so it's a little bit confusing, because Moses says this is a generation of Adam, and when he created Adam, he made them in the image of male and female, and he named them Adam. So they're named Adam, and his name is Adam, but Moses wants it to be clear as mud. <laughs> male and female are both Adam, both in the image of God. We're both created in the image of God, and all that that implies. And it implies a few things about what God intended for manhood and womanhood. A few of those intentions that we're going to look at are equality in personhood, equality in dignity, operating in harmony, operating complementary to each other, and possessing a shared destiny. Let's consider how these arise out of being made in the image of God and it being good. First of all, equal in personhood. A man is no less or more a human person, to use a silly example, because he is hairy all over. 
And a woman is no less or more a human person because she is not hairy all over. So in other words, there's nothing about our physical makeup that makes us more or less human. We don't look at the physical differences between man and woman and say, well, they're more human or less human than the other. It doesn't matter how hairy the guy is. He's not any more an ape. He's still just as much a person, even if he has to shave his back. And females are not any more refined or dignified or a higher order of humanity because they don't have hair all over them. So, obviously, hair is a silly example. But the idea is is that we're equal in personhood regardless of our physiological differences, no matter how big we think those differences are, they don't change our equality in status as persons. Because personhood is derived from being created in equal likeness to God. And so because we have equal personhood, we thus have equal dignity. We treat humans differently than animals. A man or a woman is not a frog or a dog. No matter who they are or what they have done, there is an intrinsic value in all human life as image bearers of God that says they must be given the dignity of humanity. And there are lots of subtle and even very difficult ways we have to work that out in our culture and in our legal system. And there's a few ways that we know the curse has already impacted the world and the world has already turned this upside down. Unborn puppies have more protections than unborn babies in too many places. I've seen husbands and wives who care more about having happy pets than a happy relationship with their spouse. There are times when we turn this upside down and we honor animals higher than we honor humans made in the image of God. But because we're made in the image of God equally, we're equal in personhood and deserving of equal dignity. At its simplest form, this equality and dignity means that men and women should be equally intent on respecting one another. That respect from man to woman or woman to man does not flow in just one direction or become lopsided one way or the other, either in a relationship or in society. Because we are equal in dignity, as John Piper says, men and women should look at each other with a kind of awe. That's how God intended it when he made us equal in person and equal in dignity in his image. It also implies that we should be operating in harmony if we're in the likeness of God. Because we're equal image bearers of God, there should be harmony between us. God is not at war with himself. In him and between the trinity of his person, there is no conflict. There is no desire for one part of the trinity to rule over the other. The created nature of man and woman is harmony as God is in harmony. Like Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers dancing, or like figure skaters skating, they may take different steps, but they don't run into each other, and when they do come together, they know which one is leaping and which one is lifting. There's harmony between men and women because they are, like God, harmonious. Not all parts of the Trinity do the exact same thing, but they are never in disagreement about who does what and how it gets done, and never trying to rule one another. And because they're operating in harmony, thus they are complementary to each other. Men and women are different. Manhood and womanhood is different. They're not exactly the same. They complement each other. Men and women are not meant to duplicate each other, but to multiply each other's differences for mutual enrichment. And we should highlight those different qualities made for mutual enrichment and flourishing, not diminish them. 
And we also have a shared destiny, meaning that there's not some special or preferential outcome for man versus woman or woman versus man. God intends the same perfect relationship with both men and women, equal salvation, equal standing, equal joy, equal satisfaction in the knowledge of God through Jesus Christ. Both men and women, as Peter says in 1 Peter 3, 7, are fellow heirs of the grace of life. So those are some of the implications of being made in God's image as men and women in Genesis 1, where it is good. Not in Genesis 3, where it's a curse, but in Genesis 1, where it is good. That's God's intent. That's how he intended creation to be. And then moreover, God fills in more details about his intentions for male and female in chapter 2, verses 20 to 24. It says, For Adam was not found a helper fit for him, So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on the man, and while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, This is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. There's a lot we could unpack here. I'm just going to take pieces of it, okay? But God says not only are man and woman equal in dignity and equal in personhood and should be in harmony with one another, God says, I'll round it out for you a little more. Women are going to be helpers of men. And right there, I know you're thinking, aha, I knew God was going to say we're subordinate at some point, but just hold on, we're going to get there, okay? Before we get there, just pause for a minute. And I just want you to think about this text and the culture in which this text coming from God and coming from Moses is coming into. Consider the culture that Moses is dropping this written word on. Man and woman created equally in the likeness of God. Men are supposed to leave their family and hold fast to one wife and become one flesh with with her. And Moses is taking the role of a scribe here. We just have to step out of the text here and understand what's going on. This is Moses' writing. This is after all of the forefathers. This is after the patriarchs. This is after Egypt. This is on the way to the promised land, Moses is the scribe here. And he is assembling, by the influence of the Spirit, the oral and written histories. Genesis 5 there was a bit of a clue. It said, these are the generations of Adam. Right? People recorded their history, and Moses is compiling these generations and these oral histories and written histories. He's the scribe of Genesis. He's he's compiling all of the very earliest interactions with God and God's intentions for mankind. And this compilation is being written by a guy who grew up in Egypt, who is writing the histories of polygamous Middle Easterners in the midst of a culture where women are considered possessions and feel free, guys, to collect as many as you can. And in the midst of that culture, Moses writes out, God made man and women equal in his image, and men, you are supposed to leave your mom and your dad, and your loyalty is not to mommy anymore and to daddy anymore, but your loyalty is to this woman who is now one flesh with you. She is not less than you. She is your flesh. This is where the word of God is landing in that culture. This is shockingly countercultural. This is so different than what Moses was growing up in. The culture of Egypt, the culture of Assyria, the culture of Persia, the culture of anyone, Moab. Because all this time leading up to this, Moses writing this, this culture has been going the wrong way. This culture has been, it's been men and women living out the curse of 316 all this time until Moses writes this down. It's been a power struggle with men, women winning. 
The Bible was not written to prop up the patriarchy, but to undermine it. Just imagine if if men were writing the Bible or men were editing the Bible in order to prop up the patriarchy, they did a terrible job of it by writing this. Oh, men and women were both made in the image of God. Men, you're supposed to abandon your family, cling to your wife, and she's not less than you. She's the same flesh as you. Well, that's a stupid thing to leave in the Bible if you're trying to prop up a male patriarchy. They're not good writers or they're not good editors. If this is trying to serve the cultural agenda of any age, it doesn't work. It's countercultural to the agenda of every age. But it still says that the woman is man's helper. Yes, it does. What does that mean? Well, let's think about it. If man needs a helper, it means man is not able to do his own, do the job that he has on his own. Think about it, moms. Who needs help? Incapable people need help. Moms, moms, you help your children with their chores. Why do you help your children with their chores? Because they can't do it. Men, you need help with what God has in store for us in our manhood, with what he has given us in our whole life. Men, we need help, is what this text says especially with our wardrobe. Socks and sandals do not mix. Cargo shorts and t-shirts are not in style. And I just described my entire summer wardrobe, by the way. But seriously, God says here, man needs help. Man is the one who needs the help. And this is a statement of profound humility for men. And before you think that I'm just patronizing either men or women, I want us to see where the word helper is used. A helper is the word ezer, and it's used all through the Old Testament not to indicate a subordinate role, but rather an additional or even, even superior capability in order to accomplish what isn't being accomplished. When the word is used, it's most often used with regard to God helping man. In Exodus 18.4, it says, In the name of the other, Eliezer, And so he's describing why he is named Eliezer. He said, for the God of my father was my help. It means God helps. God was the helper. In Deuteronomy 33, 7, it says, with your hands, Lord, contend for Judah and be a help, an Ezer, against his adversaries. You see, Judah, that's the name of Israel, the nation of Israel in this context, saying Israel is helpless. Israel can't do it. Israel needs an easer, needs a helper. Or Psalm 33:20, our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield, our easer. Can we claim that any of these verses are saying, God is my subordinate, God is my errand boy, God is my butler? You know, God, come along and help Israel because you are the servant of Israel. No, it is, I am in need, I am unable, I am incapable, I need an easer, I need help. So God being called easer or helper throughout Scripture brings honor to the role of helper. And since it's God called helper, then helper can't mean inferior. And so the meaning of easer or helper in Genesis 2 can't mean that the woman is inferior to the one that she helps, nor have any less dignity as a helper. If anything, it means she should have more because men are in need of help and she has the help that they need. And anyone saying otherwise would have to mount a very convincing argument to try to inverse the plain meaning of the word easer. 
So in terms of what God intended for the relationship between God and man, forget the curse, forget the fall, forget sin, forget ugly, destructive, combative, abusive cultures around the world that have grown up out of sin and the curse and that are not a picture of what God intended. God intended equality, dignity, harmony, complementary help, and unity as one flesh with one destiny for man and woman, for husband and wife. That is the position women who are redeemed by the grace of God and set free from the curse are to hold alongside men who are also free from the curse and victorious over their sin. Which brings us to the solution. As God's people, as redeemed people, we are meant to be free from that curse. How do we live in such a way that we are shedding the effects of our sin and demonstrating the goodness that God intended in creation? I mean, this is good news that you're preaching, Paul, but how do we do it? Now we come to the solution, the gospel. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. We're, We're supposed to be free from the curse because Christ has become our curse on our behalf. Romans 5.19 says, For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, he's talking about Adam and the curse, so by one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. He's talking about Jesus. Paul is saying, Adam messed it all up in Genesis chapter 3. Jesus fixed it all in John 3.16. So there's no surprise here. The answer is Jesus. The only way that manhood and womanhood are going to be rescued and redeemed in our culture or even in our marriages, the only way that the curse of this conflict and struggle is going to be lifted off us is by the finished work of Jesus Christ. Jesus went to the cross in order to set right the damage caused by sin and the consequences of the curse. So that, as Paul said, many can be made righteous. Here's the good news. You do not have to settle for life under the curse. You do not have to settle for this battle of the sexes, for this gender war. You do not have to have a marriage that is about conflict and who is going to get the most out of the other and who is going to get their way. You don't have to follow that old slave master anymore. Romans 6 says, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin, for one who has died has been set free from sin. And so what God intends for Christian marriages is to be a picture of what life is like apart from the curse. Christian marriages are meant to be a light to the world the same way that Israel was meant to be a light to the nations in the Old Testament. Christian marriages and God's people are meant to be a light of what it is like without the curse, a shadow of heaven to come, what it means to live in a redeemed way under the intention that God originally had, not under the curse that was a result of our sin. And so from that knowledge, we could go from here into many instructions to husbands and wives about how we live as redeemed people in our marriages and in relationship to others of the opposite sex, how we live in the new covenant together as brothers and sisters, not as combatants, nor as depraved people under a curse trying to exploit the other, 
That is not how God's people live. And I clearly have no time to get into all of those instructions today, but I think most of you know those books, and you know those verses, and you certainly know people who do know them and who would help you learn them if you ask. And so if you are struggling with a desire to exploit the opposite sex, if you are struggling with conflict in your marriage, if you are struggling with what manhood or womanhood is, there are spiritual fathers and spiritual mothers who will teach you. Seek them out. There is a good manhood and womanhood that is intended by God, and we can know it, and by the power of Christ, we can live it. God's intention was never that husbands and wives and men and women would be at war with each other or in conflict. We brought that into our lives through sin. But God has made a way that we can be set free from all of that old animosity. We can be set free from that ancient battle and that ugly contest that raises itself up whenever we want what we want and we want our way. Jesus died to give us freedom from that and a new way to live, submitting to one another with kindness and humility and filling our roles as men and women to the glory of God. That's what God intends for us. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is always countercultural, that it speaks to us in so many unexpected ways because we want to go our way and your word comes in and says, no, that's not what I intended. That is not what I desire for you. I have something better. I have something greater. I have something more beautiful. Father, I just pray as both men and women, as moms and dads, as husbands and wives, that we would lean in to the better life, the better picture, the better reality that you have in store for us through Jesus Christ. And if we don't know that, if we're struggling to find it, if we've lost our way in it, that we would turn to a spiritual father, a spiritual mother, and ask for their help, even this week, so that we can see your intention for our relationships with each other. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.